You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to an all new episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. This is episode 63, recording on April 7th. Joining me today is Editor-in-Chief of Apple Insider, Neil Hughes. How is it where you are, Neil? Uh, it's overcast and cold uh, unseasonably, but hey. Well, that's not cool at all. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I work from home, so it doesn't matter to me. Working there from home, you've had the chance to get your hands on the latest iPad. I have, yes. I've been uh, holed up in my cave here, um, and I tested and reviewed for Apple Insider both the 9.7-inch iPad Pro as well as the 4-inch iPhone SE, and we ran both of those last weekend. How long have you had the iPad in your hand? I got the iPad last week when it launched um, and used it... uh, Switching a lot back and forth between the 9.7 inch and the 12.9 inch. And, um, you know, it's a great iPad. It's the best iPad Apple's ever made. Um, it is not personally for me. And, and that's something important that people need to remember when they read, read, read these reviews and all that kind of stuff. When I write something on Apple Insider, it's not meant to be my personal use case. It's meant to be for someone who's a prospective iPad buyer. Is this the right iPad for you? What should you buy? And so when you review, you kind of have to put yourself in, in their shoes. Now, the question is, what are you using an iPad for? Well, for some sl- people, slow, slow down, slow down one second, because you, you, you've you clarified who you're writing the review for and why and what you're taking into account when you do it. Sure. Why is this iPad not for you personally? Well, for me personally, um, it's too small, um, especially, man, now that I've been using the iPad Pro, I see why a lot of people wouldn't want the big iPad Pro, the, the 12.9 inch, because it's heavy. And if you're doing it for stuff like watching Netflix in bed, it's not very good for that because it's heavy. It's one and a half pounds. Uh, man, this 9.7 inch is small and light. It's under a pound. It's the same size as the previous one. And they cram- they managed to cram all this stuff inside that small package. It's a really, really impressive iPad. But again, um, I prefer the bigger screen. So the question is, what are you using it for? So Shane and I were talking this last week. He's been very excited about the 9.7 inch Pro because he does a lot of taking notes and he wanted to use the Apple Pencil, which you obviously could not do on the iPad Air 2. So the new 9.7 inch Pro is out and he got his hands on it, but now he feels like it's too small because he wants to be able to write on a big screen. The reason he feels like the 12.9 inch is too big is because he carries his around town all the time. My iPad never leaves the house. So my iPad is basically my, my couch computer. When I don't want to bring a full laptop over and use it while I'm sitting there watching TV or away from my computer where I get work done, if I just want to read something, browse the internet, whatever, I use my iPad and it sits on my lap. And so the 12.9 inch is fine for me. The weight and is not an issue and the giant screen is gorgeous. But it really depends on what you're using it for. If you're going to tote it around town all day or if you're doing a lot of holding your iPad with one hand and using the Apple Pencil with another, you would never want to use the uh, the the 12.9 inch model if you're standing up. That would be terrible. It's it's too heavy. It's too large. It's too cumbersome. The 9.7 inch model is great for that. It's so light. You could easily hold it with your left hand and write with your right hand and all that kind of stuff. It works really well. Okay. So So Shane is sort of torn because he could go either way on this. He wants the bigger screen, but he's so portable, he needs the smaller one. You don't realize how much bigger that 12.9-inch diagonal screen is than the 9.7-inch one. The 
the uh, width of the 12.9 inch screen is the same as the height of the 9.7 inch screen. I mean, it is that much bigger of an iPad. These products serve very different types of users, very different markets. They're very different products that they, the different screen size makes a world of difference in how you use it and what you use it for. Clarify for me again, what, what are you using yours for at home? So my iPad Pro, the 9.7 inch is a largely a couch computer for me. I use it sitting on the couch, watching TV, doing what have you. That's really where it's the most appealing to me is a really thin and light computer that is easy for me to snap a keyboard onto with the smart connector or snap a cover onto if I want to watch a movie on an airplane or something. It's a very versatile, dynamic computer that I can use in settings where I don't want to bring my laptop or I don't want to use my laptop. And especially when I want the limited functionality of iOS as an advantage. So if I get in my laptop, I'm immediately getting bombarded with work emails, messages, all that kind of stuff. I actually turn off iMessages on my iPad so I can sit down and just kind of focus on what I'm doing on it. Uh, I actually use the the largely uh, single task functionality of iOS as an advantage to kind of block out all the noise. When I'm on my Mac, I have a million things open and it's all jumping at me and work is immediately in my face and stuff like that. The iPad is a nice way to get on a computer but not have everything just thrown at me. Yeah, so you're using it to focus. Right. And it works great for that. I I love my iPad and I've been very happy with my 12.9 inch iPad Pro. This 9.7 inch model, it's a big change when you go back from the larger screen to the smaller one. And obviously, like I said, that has its advantages using it one handed, um, all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to stuff like typing on the screen, um, I don't even have the smart keyboard for this. I only have it for the 12.9 inch model. I didn't get it for the 9.7 inch because I'm just reviewing it temporarily. Um, but Dan did test it out for our review, and he found that the keyboard was functional and it worked. But obviously, it's going to be cramped and, and that sort of stuff. So it's just a different product for a different market. Right. I gave the iPad Pro, the 9.7 inch, a four out of five. And the reason I gave it a four out of five and not a higher score, which it's, let's be honest, four out of five is a great score. Okay. Well, yes, but for an Apple device from Apple Insider. Let's let's. <laughs> oh, I've given way worse reviews. I, I gave I gave the second generation Apple TV a two point five out of five, and the fanboys' heads just about exploded. But you got to remember when that thing shipped, it didn't have AirPlay and it had like no content on it. And it was like, why would you pay a hundred dollars for this thing when the best feature, AirPlay, isn't even in the box yet? So anyhow, uh, I really like this thing, but the problem is. You know, it has the same uh, amount of RAM as the previous one, which, you know, a lot of people are going to go, oh, don't focus so much on the specs. Well, stuff stays open longer, including tabs on my larger iPad Pro because it has four gigs of RAM. So in terms of being a computer replacement, being limited to two gigs of RAM is a detriment to the 9.7 inch model. It also doesn't have the USB 3 port on um, the lightning connector, although I'm not using a lot for transferring. I don't really view that as a big deal for this size. Um, and, you know... It has the speakers, it has the Apple Pencil, and it has the smart connector, which are all features from the 12.9-inch model. But if you're looking at it from a consumer's perspective, the average person buying an iPad, are they going to buy the Pencil? Are they going to buy the smart keyboard? And are they going to be using the speakers a lot? If the answer is yes, $600 for the 32-gig model is a great deal. But if you're not going to use a lot of that stuff, and I'm guessing a lot of iPad owners aren't, you're better off getting the iPad Air 2, which is only $400 right now. has the same amount of RAM, slightly lower processor, doesn't have the fancy color-changing display, but who's going to use that stuff? You know, that That's what I have to look at when I review this kind of stuff. For a, a high-end user who wants to have an ultra-portable machine, 
that can replace many of the functions of their laptop and do things that their laptop can't, like adjusting for environment and giving more accurate color reproduction, I think it's a great device. But if I'm writing a review for a more casual consumer, you know, somebody who just wants a tablet that they can read on and browse the web, do they need the smart connector? Do they need pencil support? Do they need the four speaker array? Do they need the true color display? I don't think that most people are going to need those kind of things. And I think for a lot of people, the better value is in the $400 iPad Air 2. Let let me ask about the true tone display, because that was something that some of our, our readers and listeners were concerned about. Did you turn on TrueTone? Yes. And I mean, it works. Um, you can definitely see there's a difference when you have them side by side. Um, and for me, because I'm not a, a artist, I'm not um, I'm not so worried about the color accuracy. I'm not like, I mean, I guess technically I get paid to shoot photos for reviews, but I'm not like, uh, you know, some sort of magazine photographer or something like that. So while those features might appeal to pro users like that, and it is definitely a pro feature, I found the anti-glare capabilities of the screen to be way more interesting than the accurate color reproduction. And what what is the biggest benefit that someone is going to derive from getting this instead of, say, the iPad Air 2? What's what's the reason to, you know, you're looking at an iPad, you're looking at the Air 2, and you're trying to decide between these two 9.7 inches? Again, it's really going to come down to, are you typing a lot? Are you drawing and taking notes a lot? Because if those are the kind of functions that you want, um, then you're going to really want to get the pro. You're really going to want that pencil support. Um, and then I guess, again, it's like, what kind of typing are you doing? Are you doing something where it's occasional? Then Apple's smart keyboard is great. Do you want you know a keyboard on there all the time? Well, then there aren't really any smart connector accessories available right now that are going to make for a great permanent keyboard on there yet. Even by the nature of the design of the smart connector, it's meant to be, I think, temporarily used with a keyboard. You know, you snap it on there when you want to use it. And then when you just want a tablet, you snap it off there. That's why I love the smart connector. and I'm such a proponent of it. Right now, all we have for the 9.7 inch model is Apple smart keyboard and no other accessories. I know Logitech's working on some stuff and, and they're supposed to let us know in the near future what they've got coming. But as of right now, there is no uh, Logitech keyboard for it. There are no other smart connector accessories. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about is the iPhone SE. And I've been thinking about it because... Yeah, you know, I, I have people close to me that use an iPhone five, mm-hmm. and it's probably due for replacement. I'd say so. They they work fine, but you know, there's no Apple Pay. It's it's aging. Maybe it's time. You have the iPhone SE there, don't you? I have officially switched to the iPhone SE. Yes. Whoa. You know, we we joke about this in, in the weeks that you weren't on the podcast about how we were sure this was going to be your primary phone, but I'm I'm kind of impressed that you've actually gone and done it. I didn't think I was going to do it either um, because 64 gigs was too limiting. I looked at my iPhone 6S and I had used about 105, 110 gigs on it, which is almost filling it up. Uh, 128 gig phone, obviously, but less the operating system install and all that stuff. You know, you're closer to like 115. So um, I looked at 64 gigs and I was just like, I don't think there's a way that I can do this. I just don't think I can do it. Because uh, I looked and my apps didn't even take up that much space. It was mostly photos and, you know, music as well, because I'll download stuff for offline when I'm on a flight or something like that. So I decided a couple days before the SE was coming out to see how low I could get the data use on my phone. So I went on a very extensive purging process uh, going through and uh, really working hard 
uh, to reduce the amount of content that was stored on my phone and managed to successfully get it down. I'm going to check right now and see where I'm at. I am currently at 42.3 gigabytes used uh, on a 64 gig phone. So with the operating system install and the the data that you never actually get, I have 13.2 gigs available. So I, I deleted a lot of data from my phone. Um, I did this in a few ways. I took all the video files that I had and I put them all on Dropbox just to get them off the device. I deleted a ton of photos. Uh, one way of doing it was deleting burst photos and just selecting one from my collection of bursts. Uh, you can find those by going into your photos app and then choosing albums and then selecting the burst photos and kind of getting rid of those. Uh, another thing I did was I downloaded an app called, let me find it here. I downloaded an app called Lean, L-E-A-N. It's a $2 app and it lets you select just live photos on your phone and reduce them to single shot photos. So I, ta- I capture live photos, I send them, I like them, but I don't go back and look at them a lot. They're kind of capture this, send it to somebody, maybe turn into a GIF if something funny happened. Uh, you know, other than that, um, I just want a single photo. So I got rid of a ton of, uh, live photos, which cut down on some space. Um, I went through in the photos app and chose the screenshots folder. And obviously I take a lot of screenshots for work. Um, and there were a lot in there that I didn't need to keep anymore. So I got rid of a lot of screenshots, um, and just deleting apps and other things like that. And I also attempted to use the feature that uh, Apple's had f- since last year where it will save low-res versions of the images on your iPhone and then download them from the cloud when you open them because I have such a huge collection of photos. But I found that that didn't work for me because I am apparently a 12-year-old boy because I <laughs> I make and save a lot of GIFs. Um, and I have group chat with some of my friends and I send a lot of gifts. So I've mentioned on the, on the show before, I use an app called Giflay, G-I-F-L-A-Y. And, uh, I will go back and find old gifts that I have saved or ones that I've made and I will send them. Well, when you have, uh, low res versions of the photos saved on your phone, Apple just takes a single screen from the gif and then you have to open the gif for it to download Third-party apps can't download those photos. Therefore, it would show up as having no GIFs in my library in GIFLay. So I found that I could not put it in a position where it would only have low-res versions of the photos saved because that ruins your GIF collection. So I had to kind of go on an excessive purging process uh, in that respect as well. But I managed to do it. I managed to get under the 64-gig mark, and I've been using the SE since last week. Cool. And do you like it? Yeah, I, I love it. Um, the uh, design is fantastic. Uh, as a one-handed phone, it's spectacular. I live in New York, and I take the train. And uh, when you're on the train and standing, which I frequently am, you can only use one hand on your phone if you want to kill 30, 45 minutes uh, if it's a long train ride. So therefore, um, it's ideal for those types of situations. Um, obviously, the success is a better two-handed phone, m- more luxurious for typing and things like that. But if you're like me and you want to play a game or just read something or whatever, and you want to hold your phone one-handed, um, it's a much better phone. I actually wrote an editorial this week that enraged a lot of people who apparently can't uh, accept the fact that some people might use phones differently than they do. Um, and I, w- I was talking about what I dubbed the pinky shelf, which is when you use your iPhone 6S or even a smaller phone, some people have this habit, 
um, you kind of cradle the phone and then take your pinky and put it below the phone to kind of act as a stand for your, so it doesn't slide out of your hand, you know? Right. And, and I found that the size of the six S and also the, uh, uh, the shape of the lightning port and the speaker grill down there would actually not only weigh, but dig into the, the inside of my pinky. And it, it kind of became something that I was you noticing. You developed a callus on your pinky then. Uh, not quite, but it was definitely, <laughs> it was definitely irritated there. Uh, my wife did develop a callus on her pinky with her success playing the game, Mr. Crab. So it was when, when I uh, learned that, that I realized that this was a, not a phenomenon unique to me. Um, and quite a few commenters on our site and then also on Reddit uh, who are commenting on the article said that they have the same issue. So I know I'm not alone. Um, I can take the 5SE and I can cradle it in my hand and squeeze it with a death grip, so to speak, um, and not have to put my pinky under the phone and reach all four corners of the phone with my thumb. I cannot do that with a 6S. And that's a big reason why um, I just like this form factor more. The fact that it has the same rear camera as the 6S and the same A9 processor as the 6S, same two gigabytes of RAM, Apple Pay, um, all that's great. I don't care about 3d touch. I never really used it. Wasn't really that appealing to me. Uh, it does have a slower touch ID sensor, but it's so much similar. It doesn't really matter. You'll never notice it. Uh, the forward facing camera is not as high resolution, but you still do have the selfie flash. You still have live photos. I find that the five SE design, um, is better for using the, the volume button and for taking pictures and just holding it, uh, having those flat edges as opposed to the curve edges just makes it easier to squeeze the phone and, and hold it for taking photos. So I think there are a lot of advantages to this form factor and it just appeals to me personally. Was it hard going back to the smaller device for typing? I expected it to be more difficult. Um, it's no more difficult, frankly, than typing on my 6S I have found. I am sure that some people who maybe have bigger fingers would feel differently, but I thought for sure that I was going to be typing worse. Um, I had a problem um, on my 6S where I would, uh, and I don't know if this is the algorithm on Apple's keyboard predictive, you know, where it does the invisible predictive typing or whatever, but a lot of times trying to hit the M or the L keys would hit the backspace button on my 6S. Still doing that on my SE, nothing's really changed, honestly. I have the same problems typing on this phone that I did on the larger phone, and I haven't noticed anything above and beyond that. Okay. One of the things that we published recently, because you mentioned the flat sides of the phone. Mm-hmm. Uh is is you know the rumors said that this thing was going to have the rounded curves and, and surfaces of basically a shrunk down iPhone six, and with all those rumors were in mistaken. Right. But someone has made a kit that makes that reality anyway. Yeah, I guess uh, people have been making these in China for a few years for like twenty bucks. You can buy a cheap knockoff of Apple's six S uh, curved edge case, but it's designed for a smaller phone. Um, and a German magazine had one of their engineers who is an expert taking apart phones, take the parts from the SE and put them into a so-called six SE and, uh, managed to get it operational. They said that the back was not as nice as what Apple would make. Um, and they didn't recommend that anybody, any normal person do it. Uh, but it was an interesting project nonetheless. It's, it's kind of cool that it can be done, but no, no one should actually do this, right? No, I actually looked into uh, Shane uh, had told me about uh, there are companies in China uh, who will take apart your iPhone. And so you could buy, for example, a 16 gig iPhone and then get a 128 gig upgrade installed aftermarket. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, horrible voiding of your warranty and all that, but it actually works um, and works fine. So I was wondering, I would never do this, but I was wondering if you could buy a 16 gig SE and then have them install 128 gig capacity in it, which you obviously can't buy. I wonder if iOS would sign off on that and or if they check to see if it's too much capacity for that model. Right, because that was one of your big problems was, was paring down the size. So to put the, well, but if you're going to do that, I mean, why don't we go to the 256 gig chip? I mean, if it would work in iOS, I'm guessing that it wouldn't recognize a 256 gig chip in an iPhone. They only recently introduced it in the larger iPads. Right, but I I, I would be surprised if, if something in the OS refused it. You think so? I, think I mean, so. they, they started having it refuse uh, non-sanctioned Touch ID replacements. So slightly different. I mean, that's part of the secure enclave, but you got to think that the storage has to be secure at some level as well. It's encrypted. That's the data written to it. They're not. It's not done at the hardware level. But wouldn't that be a potential security flaw if the hardware were compromised in, a, in that way, where you remove the flash? Uh, 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 well, one of the things about security is that physical access is always uh, a pretty great risk. And if you've got physical access to the device, you're kind of boned anyway. Right. You know, if, if someone's going to decap chips or place voltage on lines and then read out the I.O. into some other device, uh, there's no good way to, to counter that, right? I would know. I, I, I'm I'm just kind of spitballing here. You know better than me. I'm well. I am. I am also spitballing. I'm only slightly <laughs> more informed. But you know, you you there, there's only so much you can do against physical access, right? You can do a lot against network access. You can do a lot against access over the the Lightning port, and iOS does. But what do you do to guard against someone desoldering the chip, applying voltage, and and reading out its lines directly there, right? Yeah. Or decapping it, or, or as uh, Daryl Issa and Shane loves to quote this, talked about in the the congressional hearings. You know, taking the NAND and copying it a hundred times so that you could have your ten tries against each one, kind of thing. You know, I, I wouldn't recommend doing it either way. Um, I certainly wasn't going to do it. You don't want to. Well, I mean, you know, future if iOS a, updates could brick your phone. It's avoiding of your warranty. I wouldn't recommend. It. But for 300 bucks to find out that you could put 256 gig in there is an interesting research project. I mean, if I could get 256 gigs in the iPhone SE, uh, that would be amazing. You would be quite happy, wouldn't you? I would be extremely happy, yes. But (laughs) I'm I'm holding out hope that there's going to be a 120 or sorry, a 256 gig iPhone 7 this fall. Um, And I mentioned in my review that I'll probably end up switching back to a larger phone this fall solely because of the fact that I write about technology for a living and I kind of have to be running the latest phone. Um, in order to do my job, (laughs) you know, I have to write about new features and stuff that comes out and test them and all that. So in terms of having the SE, um, the fact that it's running the latest chip and all that is a big help for me just in terms of doing my job. Uh, I am losing out on the 3d touch, but I haven't gotten rid of my success. I have that around and still operational as well in case I have to test something. But when the seven comes out, that'll probably go back to be my primary phone just because I kind of have to do that. Um, a lot of people in the comments uh, were saying, oh, you know, typical Apple fanboy just wants to praise the latest thing that they have out or whatever. And it's like, well, not not quite like this is my job at the end of the day. I do like Apple products, but I'm not afraid to criticize the company when I don't like something. And I think that the 4.7 inch phone is too big for me personally. And I'm guessing there are a lot of other users out there that feel the same way. Well, and and guessing is probably the right answer, because as we know that they're having trouble meeting supply right now. Yeah, it was predicted that this was going to be a relatively minor product launch. And certainly there weren't people camped out at the store, uh, people like their shiny new looking things. And since it looks like an old phone, uh, the interest isn't as high. But 
Apple's out of stock uh, of virtually every model at virtually every store right now. Uh, if you place a new order, it's not going to arrive till next week at the earliest for some models, uh, end of the month for other models. So, you know, who knows what the long tail of this product is, but at least at launch, Apple is having some trouble keeping up with demand. It's one of those things where I'm I'm thinking seriously that I need to get one, but now you've got me thinking we need to talk to Shane and go ahead and see about putting those chips in it. <laughs> that would be nice. My hope is that this phone sells well enough that Apple says, oh, maybe we'll update it every year. Because I think the way it is right now, they have no intention of updating this next year. I think they tried with the iPhone 5C um, and saw that that strategy didn't work. So this is kind of their new attempt at it. Let's give it uh, the latest and greatest and let's not release it at the same time as the new phone so it's not uh, overshadowed. Because you're going to remember the 5C came out the exact same time as the 5S. Not to say the 5C was a failure. I think it did pretty well for Apple. But I think that they maybe were expecting a little bit more out of it, and that's why they didn't bother doing an update to it. I think if this thing does well enough, uh, maybe they will see an upgrade next year, but they've certainly put enough power in it that they don't have to upgrade next year if they don't want to. Well, and that's the other thing is that the 5C was not the latest and greatest, and this one is in a large way current. And released six months after the previous phone, so it has some room to stand out from the other one. Right, but I I wouldn't object. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with them updating it year on year, six months after. I don't think so either, but I think the key reason they put the latest and greatest in this phone and called it the SE and not a 6SE or something like that is because they have, certainly they could change their minds, but I think the plan right now, my guess is leave this out there for two years at the same price. Right, and it's not tied to any specific version. Right. right? It's not a six, it's not a seven, it's not going to feel long in tooth when they introduce an eight kind of thing. Exactly. So they can continue to sell it, and by putting the A9 processor in there and the 12 megapixel camera, they can continue to sell this through 2017 and not feel like it's some sort of a dog. Don't forget they did the exact same thing last year with the iPod Touch. They don't plan on updating the iPod Touch every year. And what did they do last year? They put the A8 chip in there, which at the time was the latest and greatest chip that Apple had. And it was like, whoa, I got to pay $550 or whatever for an iPhone uh, uh, 5S with a slower chip, or I can spend $200 on an iPod Touch and get an A8 chip. So at the time, it was like, wow, this is a really great deal. In a couple of years, you know, then it'll start to be a little older, but they can keep it in the lineup for that long. So, you know, like my mom has an iPhone 5. And she doesn't like to get new phones because new technology kind of intimidates her. And I, I texted her and I said, if you're, if you need a new phone, now is the time to upgrade. And she's like, well, I don't need a new phone. And I'm like, well, it's a really good value at $400. Getting this latest chip. It's this a camera, really good value at 300 from Walmart. Right, exactly. So uh, if, if you're in the market to buy a smaller phone, right now is the time to buy. And I think my, my mother, people like her, are, would be reluctant to switch to a larger phone. And so buy now because it's not going to get updated in September. It's probably not going to get updated next year unless this thing really sells like gangbusters. Um, And so I think if you were in the market for a four inch phone and you've got a five or five S or even a four, uh, this is, this is a great phone to buy and it's easy, easy recommendation for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm still thinking about it. I'm still, I'm, I'm on my mind. You know, it occurs to me that it's a smart decision to name it SE, not, not only because it's not tied to the six or seven or whatever the numerical system they give them. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's, you remember how Microsoft used to name things, right? Windows 95, 98, millennium, right. They were, they were tied to year releases or, or windows 2000, uh, server 2003 and being tied to those years made all the products look old. 
and you it it makes you feel obligated to update it every year and that's not a good idea it's not practical no and then if you miss deadlines or delays or whatever your entire branding is screwed up well, the reason they skipped from uh, from Windows 8 directly to Windows 10 was because when they were trying to deal with bugs, they'd said anything with an 09 in it to, or with a 9X in it because they were trying to handle any of the old Windows 95, 98 series. So they had to skip version 9 or break all that code. Mm-hmm. It's, so you sabotage yourself in really interesting ways. The, the SE branding is very smart because even the implication of special edition, uh, what it suggests is that maybe they won't make another one. Maybe this is the last one of this phone. You know, they can do whatever they want at this point, And the branding of it says everything that it needs to say. Totally. There's no commitment for a new phone next year. There's no uh, commitment for a new phone at this size ever. This may be the last one they decide to make. It was like when they rebranded the iPod Classic. Yeah, but there is a commitment for software support. Right, which is why giving it an A9 chip ensures that, and two gigs of RAM ensures it's going to be running for a while. Yeah. You could buy this phone with confidence and know that three or four years down the road it's still going to run. And that's such an important thing. My dad has a, a Motorola E, the second gen. He's not had software support. They told him he was going to have software support and get all the Android updates, and it didn't. Then the phone died, and he called them up and had to deal with phone support for this terrible thing because he could have just, what, gone to an Apple store and had support for four years and had uh, had easy dealing with the hardware. But no, Lenovo totally messed that one up. Well, it's funny how, you know, you think of one of the big criticisms of Apple, especially from Windows users and IT professionals, was that Apple abandoned its hardware and software so quickly that you couldn't hang on to it for very long. And certainly that was a valid argument in a lot of ways because Apple would, uh, you know, stop supporting hardware, you know, after four or five years, six years in a lot of cases. And in the Windows world, that's not that much time. But now when you compare the iPhone and even Macs to Android phones, it's complete opposite. It's like Apple's the only one that's giving long-term support for these devices, relatively speaking, whereas all these other phones, you know, you're lucky to get an update even after you buy it, even one update. You're, you're so right. And I just want to say that, that, you know, yesterday we got four beta releases. Mm-hmm. Right. We had iOS 9.3.2 beta coming out. We had the uh, 10.11.5 mm-hmm. beta for OS 10 and even a watch OS beta. So what do we know about these betas? Uh, they're just minor bug fix updates. Um, I wouldn't expect anything uh, major to come to any of these platforms. Uh, I think that the iOS 9, watch OS 2, um, El Capitan and uh, tvOS 9 are all pretty much uh, d- done in terms of new features. Uh, you're going to have to wait to see the next well, generations of these platforms at WWDC. You, you say that, but TVOS got some interesting updates in the last uh, last round. Right, and that was a point one update. That was yeah. 9.2 for them, um, which added folders and stuff like that. So the way it works is... Dictation. Dictation is great, yeah. <laughs> so the way that it works with Apple is a point zero release and a point one release um, are new features. And if it's a point oh one point one release... Uh, then it's just bug fixes. So you can expect uh, tvOS 10, iOS 10, watchOS 3 maybe, probably, and uh, OS 10.12 uh, to arrive uh, or at least be announced at WWDC in June. And that's when you're going to see a whole host of new features for those platforms. And as you say, it's just continued refinement, continued bug fixing, and and making things just better and better. Right. And there are a lot of bugs to fix as evidenced by the uh, Siri Twitter lock screen bypass that uh, Apple fixed server side today. 
the um, older iPad and iPhone activation issue that Apple had to issue a few updates for, uh, the web links bug that was caused by booking.com that screwed up a whole bunch of stuff. Um, There have been a lot of bugs in recent weeks, some Apple's fault, some not. Uh, but that's why software is hard to do, and and the updates keep coming. Let's let's talk briefly about your favorite topic and mine, the FBI. <laughs> the, there there are two pieces of news here, right? There's one is is that direct, well, three pieces really. I mean, the the FBI is not commenting on what they have or haven't gotten out of the uh, the iPhone, right? Mm-hmm. They they clearly were able to access it, but they're not still letting on that they were able to get anything useful out of it. Is that, is that the correct summary of that? Yeah, basically. I mean, I don't know what people expected. I don't think the FBI is going to reveal the the evidence that they get out of this. That, that certainly um, it was not something that they were going to be inclined to do. Right. We all expected that there was going to be nothing useful in there. Yeah, it was the guy's work phone. So who knows? Um, it was the work phone and it was the only phone that they didn't actively destroy, right? Right. So presumably nothing on it. You know, conspiracy theorists would have you say that uh, the FBI picked this fight just so they could get into future iPhones. Um, I don't know how true that is or not. Um, I think that uh, the reality of it is uh, uh, this was this is an inevitable fight that uh, was always going to happen. And the FBI went about it very poorly and ended up being something of a PR disaster for them. Um, Apple went on the offensive and rightfully so, and it worked out pretty well for them. And now you can see even the White House kind of backing off publicly, uh, endorsing, you know, having backdoors for encryption and things like that. Uh, the FBI found a workaround uh, that apparently only works with the iPhone 5C. It won't work with the 5S or newer, which have a secure enclave, which makes it even harder to crack. And I think that uh, everybody, including Apple, would like to kind of silently move on from this and never discuss it again. Yeah, it looks like the administration is split on on this issue, right? Some of it is is reflecting that an encryption bill would be very controversial and unlikely to make it through Congress. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they they really do believe that law enforcement agencies should have access. Yeah, and I, I think that um, I, I understand the side of of law enforcement here. It it makes sense, and and from government as well. Um, you know, their job is to protect people and keep them secure. But uh, you know, with the Panama Papers that came out this last uh, week, with uh, um, uh, WikiLeaks and and everything uh, that was done by Edward Snowden between uh, the Patriot Act and post nine eleven NSA spying and all that. Uh, you have a populace that's very skeptical of giving the government that much power and uh, skeptical of people's ability to uh, keep things uh, uh, used the way that they are supposed to be used. And that's why you've seen a lot of public backlash against it. And that's why a lot of companies have come out in support of Apple. Well, and good encryption is pretty much a binary thing. It either works or it is vulnerable, right? And the goal of of people implementing this stuff is to demo- implement something vulnerable. This is the goal is to implement something that is truly secure all the way through. Yeah, I mean, I I support Apple on this, but it's interesting to me that a lot of people feel like the FBI should have disclosed the um, bypass method that they found to Apple. I don't think that's, just like I don't think it's Apple's obligation to let the FBI into their phones, I don't think it's the FBI's obligation to let Apple know when they find security flaws. I think that that's kind of the way that this stuff's supposed to work. Everybody's on their side and everybody works for their advantages. And unless there's a really compelling reason to do so, um, you know, if the, if the FBI wants to prove that they can be trusted with this information, then, then they should make sure it doesn't get out. Well, that's certainly a reasonable position to take. The alternative one is the one in that, that says that we are all more secure, both the companies and, and its users and us as a country, when our, the products we use are secure. 
and that if the FBI wants to help Americans remain secure in, in their data and their communications, that they ought to do responsible bug disclosure, responsible vulnerability disclosure, the same way that security researchers disclose vulnerabilities to companies. Sure. Yeah. And, and I, I, I understand that point of view, and, and certainly it's a reasonable one to take. Um, but, you know, the FBI wants to be able to get into supposedly bad guys' phones. At least you hope that's the only phones they want to get into. Well. And, <laughs> you know, well, yeah, but, you know, uh, well. let, let's be real. This guy whose phone they wanted to get into was a bad guy. He went and, and committed a horrible crime. And uh, their calls for having a permanent backdoor while misguided, uh, I I would like to believe at least that uh, the FBI has good intentions and their purpose for trying to get into people's phones is because they want to stop and, you know, prevent future crimes. Um, so, I mean, there's always going to be a cat and mouse game. There's always going to be these warring sides. The FBI is actively trying to crack um, uh, Apple's uh, encryption. The, uh, Apple is trying to stay one he- step ahead. I mean, let's be real. Um, when you look at security researchers, right, who uh, crack an iPhone, They'll let Apple know beforehand, but then they come out and publish how they did it, and they let everybody know. So people then right. don't update. I mean, wouldn't the more but secure they thing responsibly to do? wait for Apple to acknowledge and, and work with them on it first, generally? Okay, and then Apple has to put out the update, and they wait for that. But if people on older phones then are updated, or they work in a corporate setting where they don't allow the installs to be put on there immediately, you then potentially are putting millions of phones at risk. So. I'm not saying that they should, but I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Should those security researchers really publish their methods? I mean, clearly, yes, because it's good for everybody, especially people that want to learn more about security and encryption and how these things work and it's public knowledge. But the more secure thing to do would be keep it to themselves, wouldn't it be? Well, um, isn't it free publicity for the security researchers when they put it out there? I mean, really, all they're doing is getting their name out there. Yes and no. I mean, there are there are bug bounties and things like that. Right. And and at the same time, it's not uh, obscurity. That is the act of keeping something quiet is is not really very good security. Just if one person can discover it, then other people can also discover it. But if it's patched, why publicize it? Um, if it's patched, you you publicize it so that you people can learn from it. It advances right. the science. All right, I, I agree. But, you know, I, I was uh, reading something a couple of weeks ago where um, there was an episode of Mythbusters where they were uh, experimenting with uh, things that you could use from your home to make explosives. And they found that one of the uh, rumored ingredients that you could use was actually made a really dangerous, huge explosive. And so they said, well, we're not going to put this out there. And so, I mean, that's not an apples to apples analogy here, obviously, but it's it's security through obscurity and. It's it's not good security because anyone who was really interested could have figured it out. But is it really in the best the, interest of of people for? Uh, it's certainly not in the best interest of Discovery Channel and their liability. Right, that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are other episodes of MythBusters where, and then you've gotten us on all kinds of lists by the things you've mentioned in this podcast. <laughs> but there there are other episodes of MythBusters that never made it to air. Right. Uh, particularly around. Uh, credit cards. And if, if you look online there where the Mythbusters guys uh, go out and tour, uh, Adam Savage talked about the episodes that never made it to air because the liability and the credit card agencies and, and everyone just came down and the lawyers said, you cannot right. broadcast this ever. 
Well, one of the things that they'll teach you, um, I'm, I'm a, I have a journalism degree, and when you take ethics classes and stuff, there's little things that you don't think about when it comes to publishing or sharing information. So one example is if you uh, live in the north and uh, it's wintertime, uh, you know, a lot of times they'll do what they call feature photos on the front page of a newspaper where it's like, oh, look at these people out ice skating and they're on a pond or something. Well, if it's not deep enough in the winter, you give people an idea to go skate on their pond and then they fall on the ice and then potentially die in the cold. Uh, mm -hmm. so there's a certain point where you, it may not be far enough into the winter where all the lakes are frozen. So you don't publicize that photo because all it does is encourage people to go out and, uh, and go ice skating on their pond in their backyard. And then maybe the ice isn't frozen enough and they die. So, you know, th there's a certain level of, yes, we're protecting us from ourselves, but that's still good responsibility as a citizen. And I, I need to just fill in here. So the Adam Savage thing that I mentioned, he was talking about RFID and he actually backpedaled a little bit from his statement. They didn't come along and force them to not do the episode. There, There's a little bit more to the story than that. But the story didn't get filmed. And and the reason was that it was made by the production company and there were real problems with with trying to film that episode because people didn't want some of that information out there. Yeah. And when you're, whether you're a security researcher or a journalist or whatever, you have to exercise some caution in the type of information that you put out there because it presents real risks and danger to people. Um, you know, in all kinds of ways, something as simple as ice skating on a pond and something as uh, complex as an undercover agent overseas, you know, just putting information out there. Uh, I know that there's a lot of advocates for that style of uh, information sharing, journalism, whatever. But uh, the, the issues are a lot more complicated and nuanced than that, I believe. You would say that having a journalism degree. <laughs> Is there anything else that we should cover here that I've totally missed? Okay. I don't know if you care about transit. But, but transit's um, interesting for a second just because, you know, one of the real problems with Apple Maps is that people, um, you know, they – they uh, you go to – you normally use Apple Maps, right? But if you go to a big city and you start using public transit, you switch over to using Google. I use Google all the time. Right. That's terrible. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's Apple Maps. So. Right. But if it's getting better. I, I, I It's one of those things where uh, like when you try to find a Google competitor, it's like, oh, you know, Bing's out. You try it, use it a few times, and as soon as you have one bad result, you go, screw it. You go back to Google. It's the exact same thing with Maps. Yeah. So you keep going back to Google Maps? Yeah, I, I haven't tried Apple Maps in, in a while. Maybe I should go back to trying it um, just basically because of what I do for a living. But Google Maps gives me everything I need. It's worked well and it's never let me down. Apple Maps uh, has let me down a lot um, in terms of the information that it gives, the recommendations, when it, whether it's uh, directions, roads, transit, whatever. Um, I had a, uh, in Florida, there was a, uh, intersection that was redone, a major, um, intersection of two interstates. And I, like once a week I was reporting to Apple, you have this map wrong, you have this map wrong, you have this map wrong. And it took them like two years to fix it. And anybody that was going to drive through that, that junction was going to either get in an accident or get lost. And the fact that it took them that long to fix it was embarrassing. Hmm. I use Apple maps 99% of the time. There are a few occasions where I pull up ways and uh, I think I used Google Maps once in the past month and a half. Yeah, Google Maps is my go-to. I have them both on my home screen, but I almost never use Apple Maps. Well, I was using Google Maps the day one of the days that I was going around with uh, the Project FiSim. Mm -hmm. I had Project FiSim in in my iPhone, and I carried the uh, the Nexus 6P around with my regular SIM in it. And uh, I was going out into the country and out in the backwoods and needed maps and Apple's maps were working for a little bit and they got confused at some new construction of a bypass kind of thing. And 
So we quick grabbed the uh, the Nexus 6P and fed the address into Google and kept going. And it worked fine? Worked fine. Yeah, Google will run into a problem a lot where they'll have businesses listed on there that uh, it claims are open, but they're not. Um, that's the one that I run into more with Google. And certainly I've had bad directions with Google, but by and large, Google has been much better for me than Apple. At one point, Google's Maps started recommending Uber. I was I was yeah, doing still, a public transit have, thing, and they pushed Uber into it. And it yeah, was weird. no, they, they still have that. If you search directions for something, um, and you scroll down to the bottom of the directions in the Google Maps app, uh, like I'm going to um, I'm going to the Prudential Center in Jersey later tonight. It gives me train directions with a, a subway, and then it gives me if I want to take New Jersey Transit, and then if I scroll down, it says also consider, and I can take an Uber X, and it tells me how far away and how much it'll cost. Nice. Now, actually, I uh, so you know I've been using CarPlay for a while, right? Right. And I've had all these different radios with CarPlay in them. And, uh, you know, I like the Pioneer models very much. But the Pioneer models, in their basic setup, you specify whether or not you're using CarPlay or Android Auto. And I have one of the Kenwood models in now. And in the Kenwood model, you'd simply connect the USB, and whichever one it is, all of a sudden it pops up on the dash. There's mm-hmm. no selecting or choosing or setup steps. That's nice, yeah. It is. The The only annoyance is that to set up Android Auto on your phone and on the touchscreen on the radio, you have about six different licenses you have to agree to. Oh, God. It, it literally is bad. It's, it's, would you like to use Android Auto? Yes, agree. Would you like to use Google Maps? Yes, agree. Would you like to use this on the dashboard? Yes, agree. On the dashboard, is it okay to do this and not drive and kill yourself? Yes, okay. It's, it's tons and tons and tons of steps. But once you get it all agreed to, Android Auto is not bad. Yeah, and they're also, you're signing your life away, so... You're signing your life away, but just the choices that they made. So with CarPlay, when you plug in, your home screen is a lot like any other iOS home screen. Mm-hmm. You get a, a series of six icons and a home button and a, a sort of status bar that shows your time and your network signal. And also there's a, a, a more, most recent app like the Maps thing and running kind of thing or a music or whatever. So you can quick switch back to mm-hmm. the the most important stuff. And other than that, it's it's very much app-driven, just like any other iOS device. With Android Auto, your home screen is more like the uh, the Google Now cards. And so you get different statuses on, on what's playing music-wise and your directions and time to go somewhere. And any messages pop up there, notifications pop up there. It's all it's all very, very nicely oriented and done that way. Nice. And then you can select maps and you get to Google Maps and you've got the microphone button right there as a part of Google Maps. And so you can tell it everything you want while you're still navigating. You don't have to leave anywhere to, te- to, to give instructions. That's pretty cool. You know, if you want to touch uh, a long touch on the home button to prompt Siri... It shows you a screen with Siri on it, much the way it does on an iPhone. If you're in Maps in in Google's world on Android Auto, you simply tap on it and start saying "send a message to" or "add an add uh, add route to" or whatever, and do it while you're still in Maps. Mm-hmm. It's pretty slick. Nice. Um, their their music application is a music application. It's slightly nicer done in some ways than Apple's, but not by much. That's just a choice. But the rest of it is is not bad. It's pretty slick. That's awesome. I don't have a car to install it in, so. Yeah, you sold your car, you sold your house, well, you I, sold I, everything. I still have a Prius here, um, and <laughs> I can't install anything in that because there's no place to install it because they have their stupid Indesh thing, which it's a 2007 You're, Prius. and There is a way to install CarPlay in a 2007. Well, I'm probably not going to do it. <laughs> but the, the stuff that they have in there by default is saving us from ourselves. You know, it's 
you can't do anything while the car is moving, even if somebody's sitting in the passenger seat. Um, Mm -hmm. so you have to set it all up while you're parked. And then I understand why they do it for security reasons, but at the same time, um, you know, Toyota shouldn't be liable to get sued if, if I'm an idiot while I'm driving the car. And if I have a passenger in the car, I mean, they already know to turn off the airbag, uh, if there's a passenger in the car and they don't weigh enough or whatever. So you know that my fat butt's sitting in the seat. So let me control the damn thing. Yeah. And on the aftermarket stuff, they, they, one of the wires that they use is a parking brake line. And if you hook it up, you have to double press and release the, the parking brake in order to be Just don't access hook it up. those kinds of settings. Well, not hooking it up leaves it thinking that the brake is off and therefore you're locked out of all those features. But for, for all you people out there, there is a parking brake bypass thing that is like a $15 part you can buy on Amazon or eBay and you hook it up and it's a little microchip that sends that pulse to show the radio that you have pressed and released the parking brake. The very right nice, times. very nice. And uh, so it is possible to use a radio and unlock all of the features like this. That's like those seatbelt clips with another clip on the end where you just leave it permanently <laughs> connected in there so it doesn't beep every time you get in the car. Nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Such things do exist. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been episode 63 of the Apple Insider Podcast. Neil, where do people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at this is Neil, and uh, you can read my stuff on Apple Insider. We have our uh, iPad Pro review up there, uh, 9.7 inch. Uh, I did the iPhone's SE review, as we talked about. Have a few cool things coming down the pike, uh, including a magnet that attaches your Apple Pencil to the side of your iPad Pro. Um, so that you can have a place to put it and not roll away when you're not using it, especially if you're like me and you like to use it on the couch. Is that that gross sleeve cover you put on your pencil? It is. Uh, and I don't, I don't find it that gross, but, uh, you have to stay tuned (laughs) for the design ethic of Johnny Ive, man. (laughs) It doesn't bother me. And it's honestly more convenient to be able to snap it to the, to the iPad display, I think. So I'm pretty happy with it. Well, I'm your host, Victor Marks. I'm at VMarks on Twitter and also at Apple Insider. And if Neil really is a 12-year-old fanboy, (laughs) we will talk more about it next week on the Apple Insider podcast. 